Hey guys, this is Mark Gandy with CFO Bookshelf. When I started my solo consulting practice in 2001, I realized a big void in my small world. I had no one to talk to. A local CPA recommended that I attend a group event held by Gary Boomer's consulting practice for small accounting firms. So I attended not knowing that Gary was this famous world champion MVP consultant. During one of his sessions, he held up three books that he recommended to us. And one of them was The Firm of the Future by Ron Baker. Oh my gosh, I could not put it down. And that led me to following Ron on various platforms and videos over the next 14 years. Today, he's the co-host with Ed Kless of my favorite podcast, The Soul of Enterprise. And in a few minutes, Ron will be joining us here on the CFO Bookshelf Podcast. Now, Mark, I bet you're on cloud nine right now. Buddy, you better believe it. So, does the name Ron Baker ring a bell to you, Bruce? Uh, well, it rings a bell with me because you talk about him all the time. Yeah, Bruce, I could just go on and on. You know I love The Soul Enterprise, my favorite podcast. I've recommended it to you, of course, and I recommend this to all of the consultants that I work and coach with. Again, I could go on. You heard me talk about the way I came across Ron's name uh, through the Boomer Technology Circles. If you are in the accounting industry, uh, you know Gary's name, his consultants, uh, the consulting firm name. And when I read that book, The Firm of the Future, I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, what a book. I found other books. And of course, he is a revolutionary thinker, especially in the world of pricing and he's he's so easy to listen to. I enjoy his writing. Uh, he has several platforms. He's written on the Verisage Institute. Uh, again, tremendous writer. And Bruce, I could go on and on. I apologize if, if this is too long of a, a response. No, that's a good answer. And I think that gives us some. Uh, I think that gives us some uh, some background on what we're getting ready to hear. So with that. Uh, let's not make you wait. Mark, let's roll the tape on your interview with Ron Baker. Bruce, thank you. By the way, Ron, incredible story. You started you started learning accounting and bookkeeping in high school. And then right after that, you started an accounting practice as a kid. And then I started doing my father's books for his barbershop. And then I got some of his friends who were barbers or cosmetologists. I got their books. I started doing my dad's and other people's taxes. I started defending IRS audits at the age of 16 or 17. Didn't really know what the heck I was doing, but felt like I knew enough to go in there. And I successfully defended several. And, uh, and then my dad, because he was a barber, also did a lot of CPAs hairs. Um, he had their, you know, had them as customers. And so I, I figured they were a captive audience for an hour as they're getting a haircut and I'd sit in front of them and just pummel them with questions. Where'd you go to school? What's taking the exam like? How do I take the exam? You know, all, all of the things that you'd want to ask you know, being a high school student. And they were all very helpful. And, uh, and then, of course, I got through college. I put myself through college by having an accounting practice, basically. And all this time, Mark, you'll laugh at this. I'm billing by the hour and keeping timesheets. Because that's what I was taught by everybody. Oh, that's hilarious. You, you, you know, and then I started my career as a big eight, in a big eight accounting firm uh, in San Francisco. Stayed there for two and a half years. Went out and opened my own firm in 87 and or mid 87. And by 89, just got really frustrated and just said, there's got to be a better way to price. And we came to pricing through wanting to improve the customer experience. I was a big believer in total quality service at the time and studying companies like Disney and Nordstrom and just wanted to improve the customer experience. We had no idea what we were doing in 1989, but we gave our customers fixed prices and they loved it. And we made every mistake under the sun, but we knew it was the right thing to do. So we stuck with it. And I'm so glad I did. And we're, so we're gonna, that, we're, well, I'm sorry. We're going to hit pricing here shortly, but Ron, you didn't have a Ron Baker to follow that. So you were 
figuring this, uh, this stuff out on your own, right? Yep. That's, and you know, there was no books on the subject. There was nobody on the circuit in the CPE world talking about it. Uh, there was one guy who talked about fixed fees, but it wasn't the way that I envisioned it. And, uh, we just said, well, this is the right thing to do. And of course that's why we made every mistake under the sun, but I stuck with it. And so did my partner and we, I did more studying and I got into the marketing, which led me to the economics behind it all. And then we started offering the, the, the value guarantee and, uh, some of the other things that we talk about now, but we just, the, the customer response to it was overwhelming. It allowed us to charge higher prices. It allowed, it allowed us to sell more services to each customer and it allowed us to get rid of low value customers without worrying about losing revenue. And so the, it was just like an upward spiral. It had an amazing impact on our lives. I, th- I think it's just a saner way to run a practice. You use the term a lot. You are a recovering accountant. <laughs> I love it, and I and I repeat that a lot. Uh, what does that mean, Ron? I, I I probably stole it from somebody who <laughs> referred to themselves as a recovering lawyer. Uh, I I think it comes from AA or NA. You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. <laughs> um, I guess it's just a way of saying that you know it it it. Although I've kind of refuted some of the orthodoxies of the profession i'm still part of it it's still in my dna so it's kind of a cognitive dissonance thing i mentioned the firm of the future at the outset let's take this a step further well i tell you what let me back up if you were writing that book today and i already have an opinion about this if you're writing this book today or let me let me even back up again, Ron. If you were going to just update it, not rewrite it, but just update it, would you have much to change in that book? You know, the publisher Wiley approached me in 2010 to do just exactly that. I think the book came out in 2003. And at the time, back in 2010, so 10 years ago, I kind of went through it and said, well, I wouldn't really change a lot. I'd update some of the stories that get dated. You know, you might cite a company or whatever that merged or no longer exists or something like that. Uh, you might change particular vocabulary. Like I would definitely change key performance indicator to key predictive indicator mm-hmm. as I did in my later books. But other than that, I'm actually really proud of the firm of the future because it's a book that has stood the test of time. It's 17 years old. I still get comments from it. It's still a pretty good seller. And uh, in fact, I just had a a gentleman from India who was reading it and he would literally, Mark, I'm not kidding. He would email me after every chapter (laughs) and with questions or points to clarify or just things that just blew his mind. Uh, and it was just, it was exhilarating just to see the lights go off in his head. I could see it through email. Um, so no, I wouldn't change a lot about it. I would add, however, I would put in subscription business model into it. And I know we can talk about this, but I do see that as the wave of the future prefer- for professional firms. You talked about Ron getting started in accounting in the 1980s. And then you talk, of course, when you release this book, how have customers or clients changed? So we have the firm of the future. Uh, What about the firm of the customers in 2020 and beyond? Are they expecting more? And if so, how much? I think their expectations have dramatically increased. And you see this every day in your life. I mean, the fact of the matter is any business competes not just against those other businesses in its particular industry, you compete against any organization that has the ability to raise customer expectations. So for example, I order groceries from my local grocery store. Mark, I hate their website. It's, it's painful. It's tedious. It's slow. What am I comparing them to? I'm not comparing them to other grocery stores. I'm comparing them to Amazon. Good point. Amazon's one touch. And so every, anything they do that falls below Amazon's, I'm, I'm 
unsatisfied, let's just say, with their service. Totally oh, unsatisfied. Yeah. And they've complained to the high heavens to them about it. I said, you need to send your programmers to Amazon and learn how to create a digital experience because this is atrocious. And, uh, you know, I, I think customers now more than ever are, they're used to Netflix. They're used to Amazon Prime. They're used to streaming. Um, they don't have high tolerance for crappy service. I also think they're more relationship-based than ever. Even with the digital tools, even the, even some firms I know that don't even meet their customers because they might have customers literally around the world and have never met them. Um, they're still relationship-based. I think relationships ta- have taken on, and not just because of COVID, but just in general, everything's about relationships. And uh, I think that's one of the ways that customers and professionals have been adapting and changing. You and Ed, and of course, Bruce and I already teed this up, our favorite podcast, Easily the Soul of Enterprise. You and Ed talk about the experience economy. So you're a big fan of, of Joe Pine. What's next? And you guys have hinted about this, but I just want to ask it here. From the experience economy to what? You know, in Joe Pine's book, which I still love, and it came out in 97, it's been updated a couple of times. I think there's a third edition that I read a couple of years ago. Um, and he, when he laid out his hierarchy of value in that book, uh, I got so excited when I read that in 97 because above services was the experience economy. Now that didn't excite me very much. How can a, you know, a professional firm, a CPA firm mm-hmm. create a great customer mm-hmm. experience like Disneyland, you know, it's not going to happen. Uh, but there was one level above the experience economy and that was the transformation economy. And in the transformation economy, you're changing the customer. It's the customer that's the product. And when we had Joe Pine on our show, I asked him, Joe, now that you've had, you know, 23 years to think about this, what's above, what's next? What's, what's even higher on the value list than transformations? He said, Ron, that's not for this earth. He said, that's for, you know, heaven's gate or the pearly gates. Uh, He said, transformation is about the best you'll ever be able to do because you're actually transforming the customer. And I do think that's the future. And professionals do it all the time, which is one of the reasons I got so excited when I read it. I said, you know, CPAs and lawyers even, we we transform our customers all the time. We help them grow their business. We help them sell their business. We help them buy businesses, uh, buy their dream property, get their kids into college. We help plan their legacies. How important is William Buffett, Buffett and Bill Gates and you know, Mark Zuckerberg's legacy to them. We, we do these transformations all the time. And that means we're not just creating documents. We're touching our customer souls. We're changing them. We're transforming them. And we don't use that language, but we should, because that's really what we're in the business of. So I, I think the transformation economy, it's already here. We just might not be doing a, a good enough job with it. My biggest fear is we have set the bar so high. So we've been in this customer, I'll use the word, transformation. I said last five, six, seven, maybe even 10 years. Even Disney has taken it to a whole new new level. I know you've attended the Disney Institute a number of years ago, and we'll link to a couple of your insightful articles but has the bar been set so high that, okay, now what? Even even 10 years from now, five years from now, have customers gotten so, I want things now. I want things perfectly. I, again, I just, I fear about the next five to 10 years in delivering services to clients. Yeah, it, it, it very well could be. I mean, Amazon sets the bar pretty darn high. Uh, especially just their delivery network and their their digital experience is just, I think, unsurpassed uh, when you visit a lot of other e-commerce sites. And uh, But you know what? The, the interesting thing about great service companies, and I learned this from partly from the Disney University, was it, or is, if you look at outfits like Nordstrom and Disney and Gore-Tec and L.L. Bean and Lexus, uh, American Express, you know, these are all 
they have really, really great reputation. Southwest Airlines have great reputations in offering customer uh, experiences and service, exceeding consistently exceeding uh, customer expectations. But they're all really humble about it, and they don't like to talk about it because they know that bar is constantly being risen, and they constantly fear going below that bar. <laughs> uh, so it's just something that is in their DNA just to strive to be better every day and, and you know, in, enhance the customer experience. Walt Disney used to call it plussing. You know, get out there in the park and figure out ways to make it more enjoyable for our guests. He used to tell the managers, I don't want you sitting around in offices. I want you out there in the park uh, trying to figure out how to plus it so we can make it a better experience so people come back. And, and so I think if you're devoted to it, if it's just part of your DNA, you can create a great, you can give great customer service. Cause let's face it, Mark, it's not done that much, you know, sure. We point to certain companies. I just prattled off a bunch, but compare that to how many companies there are that give mediocre or crappy service. How many times are you disappointed? I think that's what makes great customer service so exceptional. It's it's memorable. Um, and there's no better way to create a memorable customer experience than to give lousy service. And I think that's more common than the opposite. You've already given us a tease on pricing. So you may disagree with me, but I'm going to say you are like in the top five a pricing expertise globally. And I would maybe even say maybe the top one, top two in professional services because of you, Ron, and because of Ed, I probably read 15 to 20 books on pricing over the last six, seven years. So have this heightened sense of awareness. One of the books that I would say is in the top five, maybe the top three confessions of a pricing man uh, by, by Herman Simon confession and you can push back on me, just be gentle. That was a frustrating read because as I was going through the examples, I'm thinking there's no way I could come up with some of these creative ideas on pricing. And you have even mentioned frequently that the airline industry is probably one of the most advanced at pricing. I mean, going back years. And I just think, I almost think finance people and analysts, analytical people like me may not be the best at pricing. So help us through who are the best people to bring to the table to, to, to address pricing in their firms, whether it's professional services. I think retail is a little bit easier uh, if you're selling a commodity like product. But uh, first of all, can you relate to my frustration? And, and then number two, who are the best people uh, to to deal with pricing in the firm. The Herman Simon book, Confessions of a Pricing Man, which is a ripoff of, you know, David Ogilvy's Confessions of an Advertising Man, which is also, by the way, a fantastic book. It is. Um, you know, he's the guy that said, you, you know, the consumer's not a moron, she's your wife. Um, but yes, Herman Simon gives so many great examples in that book, and they're not American-centric, which is one of the things I kind of appreciated right. about. He gave lots of European examples and whatnot. But but I think the reason why we finance people, because I include myself in that category, Mark, I'm a numbers guy, just like every other CPA, right? Born and bred on spreadsheets and all of that. Um, we struggle with pricing because pricing psychological. It's far more psychological than it is numerical. Good point. And, and that's because value at the end of the day is not a number, it's a feeling. You know, if you ask people why they spend so much money on Apple equipment, you get back and, well, it's beautifully designed, it's easy to use, like a toaster, I take it out of the box, it works. I, these are all feelings, right? Your, your guilty pleasures in life, whether it's the kind of watch you wear, the car you drive, or the bike, or having a Peloton, whatever it might be, those are all feelings, right? And And so much of our decision-making is based on psychology. Uh, now we may use rationality and logic to justify it after we've made the decision, but nobody buys an iPhone by sitting down on a spreadsheet and, and weighing the costs and benefits. Uh, it's just not how we decide things. So when you look at some of the characteristics of value, it's a feeling, it's not a number, but also uh, 
it's it's indivisible. And 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 I think this is another thing we struggle with. We want to, you know, unbundle things and assign values or costs, you know, because we're accountants. That's what we do. But if you go into a four-star restaurant, obviously they're gonna have a lot of, you know, chefs or maybe a head chef. Um, and let's say you see a team of chefs, but then over in the corner, you see a janitor. Well, from the customer's perspective, meaning from the value perspective, who's more who's more valuable? Is it the chef who produces great food or is it the janitor? Well, the fact of the matter is you can't make those distinctions. There's no way to unbundle the chef from the janitor because enjoying four-star food in an establishment that sell, smells like a sewer is not going to be a pleasant customer experience or vice versa. So you can't make a distinction. You can't unbundle value. And I think that's another thing that uh, really confuses people. I think the other thing that confuses finance people is we were taught and we've taught the rest of the world that debits equal credits. Well, in the real world, debits don't equal credits because the only reason I buy a Starbucks latte for $4 is because it's worth more than $4 to me. So even though both parties are going to go back and record that same transaction at $4 on their books, making it look like a wash, maybe that cup of coffee was worth $10 to me because I was hung over and late for my meeting, right? So we don't book the customer's profit. And that's a big problem because the only way that a transaction can happen is if the buyer and seller disagree about value. That's really interesting because all prices are all prices do is they reconcile disagreements about value. Otherwise, you and I could just or the economy could just sit around and swap five dollar bills and and grow. But that's not how growth happens. Growth happens because we have different uh, valuations, and that's how transactions happen. So whether you're a marketing firm, ad agency, consulting firm, accounting practice, uh, tax firm. Pick any other professional services firm. Do you think they should maybe suggest they go out to the outside to get some help for the reasons you just mentioned? Yeah, you you did ask about the people, and I didn't answer that. Um, I, I'm I'm happy to report that I believe that price pricing is now a prof- a profession, thanks to outfits such as the Professional Pricing Society some cutting edge universities that offer an MBA or degrees in pricing. I mean, I can get a PhD today in pricing. You can get an MBA in in some schools. Um, The certified professional pricer program from the professional pricing society out of Atlanta, Georgia. I think this is a profession. It's got all the hallmarks of a profession. And so you're starting to see companies employ uh, these CPP professionals and I have seen, because I've been involved with the Professional Pricing Society since about 2001, just an explosion in the um, in the pricing community. Just There's many more people involved, uh, both men and women. It's been growing by leaps and bounds. If you just go on LinkedIn and search for you know the number of organizations that are looking for pricing talent, it's out there. Now, you know, there's still a lot of de- the demand probably still exceeds the supply. But that, that'll change over time. But, you know, these people look at the world from a pricer's perspective. They're not cost accountants. They're not marketers. And uh, I think it's, it's uh, you know, the pricers have to be, I always say it's a multidisciplinary function because you have to be part cost accountant. You have to be part accountant. You have to be part finance person. You have to be part marketer. You have to be part psychiatrist. You have to be part actuary. You have to be part behavioral economist and part economist. I mean, there's a lot of things going on there. Um, But that's why I think it's a profession and we should turn it over to people who have a competency in it and a dedication to lifelong learning about it. Measurements versus metrics. Ron, is there a difference? Oh, geez. This is a fantastic question. This is one um, that you could probably rant on for oh, yeah, hours. So I had to ask. We as accountants love metrics. Yes. LIFO, FIFO, average costing. Um, cost accounting is nothing 
but contrived metrics. Um, because depending on what type of cost accounting method you use, you can get many different answers, right? You, whether you standard costing or lean costing or marginal costing, uh, full absorption costing. I mean, there's something like nine, 10 different sanctioned cost accounting methods by gap, and they'll all throw off a different number. Um, that's crazy because Mark, that's not a measurement. If you and I walk outside with a thermometer, if it's a good thermometer, it's probably going to give us the same reading. <laughs> that's a measurement. Yes. That's something that can be in a lab, can be done in a lab and replicated. A metric, you know, look at a financial statement run with LIFO or FIFO inventory. You're going to get a totally different net income. And that makes it kind of useless because, as they say, you know, a man who, who has one watch is certain of the time. But a man that has two watches is never certain. And, and that's where we are, especially with cost accounting, because um, I think cost accounting has reigned supreme for way too long. It's, it's fraught with peril. Dr. Reginald Lee, our colleague at Verisage, has written books on this, Lies, Damn Lies, and Cost Accounting being a great, great one. This is a great title. And and he was the one actually that taught me about the difference between a measurement and a metric because I'd never really thought about it in those terms. He happens to be an engineer, so he thinks like that. And he's destroyed cost accounting. I mean, cost accounting is is a complete joke. Um, but you know, it's kind of like the drunk looking for his car keys. He he look he's looking under the light because that's where that's where the light's best, but that's not where he lost his keys. You know, it's that story. Um and people, and when you go out to accountants and you challenge them on cost accounting, they say, well, but we need something. This is better than nothing. Well, that's like you and I being lost in New York. And I come up to you and say, oh, don't worry, Mark, I got a map. And you look at it and go, this is a map of Los Angeles. And I say, yeah, but it's better than nothing. No, it's not. It might get us killed, <laughs> right? Um, but that's kind of where we are with this. So the, the the disparity between a metric and a measurement is not well understood once you understand it, though, you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. You even see people misuse the words. When they mean measurement, they'll say metric and vice versa. And now that's just a bugaboo of mine. Speaking of measurement, let me talk about NPS briefly. And I know you're a fan of NPS. I um, what, not, not, oh, Go ahead. Go me, ahead. Not, not a big fan. Um, I, my problem with NPS... Uh, in Reichheld's book, The Ultimate Question, is it's a theory. It's a theory. Thank it you. It needs to be Thank tested. You. And, and Thank you. It, it fails. It has failed uh, several times. It doesn't work in every industry. It doesn't work for every business. I think you have to be really careful about it, especially relating back to our conversation about customer experience and expectations. Those are dynamic. MPS comes out, what, once a year? Twice a year. I know I mean, some I've, some firms uh, I work with we do quarterly, but keep right. keep, keep going. Well, I was yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to no, that, that. So it's a theory, and it doesn't work all the time. Thank you, thank you, thank you a hundred times. <laughs> well, I think my, my view on NPS is if you have no customers, if you don't have a customer mindset or a client mindset. I think NPS causes you to have a heightened sense of awareness. Maybe for the first time, you start thinking, you start thinking in terms of what what does the customer think, you know. And as you you talk about Drucker a lot, all results occur on the outside, never internally, not on the inside. But my concern with NPS was going to be that it can produce false positives, or I think that that yeah, false positives, because you may say you will promote. To another customer, but let's take like Jiffy Lube. You may say, yeah, I'll recommend to my mother, my parents, my brother, my neighbor, but you may decide you're not going to go there next time for your next oil change. And that that's where I start getting concerned with NPS, where businesses start going through the motion. So again, I'm glad to hear you say that on Net Promoter Score. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, you know, in, Enterprise, uh, I know, uses uses it, and their people are always, you know, constantly hounding you to give them a 10 or whatever. Um, if you've ever been to an auto body shop that maybe is part of your insurance's network, because the insurance company, you know, follows the uh, the scorings, 
they want tens on everything. And boy, they'll they'll bend over backwards to make sure you give them a ten on a survey. My uh, auto uh, dealer, you know, will bribe me with a free detail or oil change next time if I give them a ten. They're gaming I mean, it. <laughs> they're gaming it. Of course, we're scamps. We're humans. We'll game any metric you throw at us. Give us a metric. We'll figure out how to game it. This is this is why metrics are so dangerous because they 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 knock out judgment. They knock out uh, real communication. Uh, the other thing is you can give somebody a ten and never, it, like you said, never go back. I mean, I've done that many times. Like I stayed at this great Australian resort. They they gave, gave me the MPS question. I said absolutely, I'd recommend this. <laughs> Nobody I know has ever gone back there. So you're right. There's a lot of false positive. And boy, if that's your only feedback, um, that's not enough. That you know, one thing I learned from Disney University is they have what they call, and I love this, many mouse ears out there they're soliciting feedback from customers in or what they call guests thousand different ways you know uh surveys in the park and focus groups calls after visits i there's they have many many touch points they don't rely on just one thing uh and i think we have to be really really skeptical about anybody who says oh this is the 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 only question you need that's just nonsense the next question is one of my favorite questions. Actually, all of these questions are my favorite, but the greatest management tool for any leader, and again, it can be outside of professional services firms, accounting firms, law firms, the greatest management tool in the last 20 or 25 years is fill in the blank. I'll answer it for you if I can. Do I get- <laughs> the after action review. Yes, yes. Ding, I don't have my sound effects, dang it. Uh, because, because, okay, because, well, it's the best learning tool ever invented next to the book, I think. Good point. Word, um, because it is so transformational of a culture. It, it is a, it's, it's a cultural change. Um, I learned about it from the military and then reading a couple great books, one, uh, by the colonel who actually implemented after action reviews with the general, I should say, into uh, the army in the post Vietnam era. And they did it as a way to increase morale in the military, not as a way to capture knowledge or improve performance per se. It was about increasing morale. And there was a lot of pushback. Uh, the higher ranks thought, well, this is a terrible idea. You know, you're going to have insubordination in the ranks and blah, blah, blah. It took them, Mark, 17 years or so to really embed the after-action review into the culture of the Army. It wasn't until the first Iraq War that it really became part of who they were. Now, of course, you know, I've talked to a couple soldiers, uh, did some duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. They say, oh, we changed the toilet paper in latrine. We do an AAR on it. Uh, so it's just now become embedded in their culture. But I'll tell you what's really sad is it's not embedded in the private sector at all. Not many organizations do well, the after-action review. Thanks to you. Thanks to you. I'm doing my part. And by the way, the name of the book is Hope Is Not a Method uh, by Gordon right. Sullivan and Michael Harper. I think Sullivan's the one that's the most prominent. I think he's the colonel. Harper may be in the military, too. I can't remember. I've read that book multiple times. The first time you brought that up on your show, that was probably within the first Guys, Ron, maybe the first 25, 30 shows. I think I listened to that one episode, I bet three, four times. It was so good and we'll be linking to it. So I just want to say thank you for bringing that to my attention. Every business I work with, they now know what the AAR is. And I know the other armed services have their various postmortems as well, but I still like the after action review. And you can even tweak some of the questions too. I, I want to move on because I don't want time to get too far away. I'm not worried. The, the next one, and this is probably where you wish your, uh, your other half was on, but I just, in fact, I'm smiling as I start to ask this. The great effing debate. <laughs> the great, I just love it. I, it's just hilarious. The great effing debate. So you love, Ron, your hero, you idolize Frederick Winslow hey. Taylor, right? Yes. You love yes. him, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I do. In one respect, is I kind of built a career out of you him. You got all your material. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a punching uh, bag. 
he's just a great punching bag. He was a complete fraud. There's a fantastic book called The Management Myth. I love that book. Yeah, it's fantastic. And he just tears down Taylor. And I've read some other serious scholarly studies. I mean, like seriously boring, tedious uh, biographies on Taylor. And they take him down too. You know, he had this 40% fudge factor in all of his work. It's like, this is a complete joke to call this scientific management. It was the talk about metrics. It was the furthest thing from science uh, as you could find. But really the effing debate really um, comes out of, uh, comes from me studying economics. And, and you would think, well, you study economics. They talk about the economy's efficiency all the time. They don't. They they understand that there's no such thing as generic efficiency. It depends on what <clears throat> on what your objective is and how much you're willing to pay. For example, I live, you know, 40, 30 miles uh, from the Golden Gate Bridge. That is a completely inefficient <laughs> structure. We have to paint it every single day. It's expensive. Uh, you know, we could put up a military bridge. A lot cheaper would you know wouldn't require a lot of maintenance. We could raise it up for ships to go under it. Why do we do the Golden Gate Bridge? Why did Sydney build the Opera House? These are completely inefficient structures, and yet efficiency can't be the be all and end all. There's more to life. There's more to business than efficiency, and therefore I think effectiveness is more important. Now, Mark, the, you pick up a book. Uh, and I even think Drucker might say it this way, uh, but you know, people say, "Well, efficiency is doing things right; effectiveness is doing the right thing." That's false. Efficiency has no opinion on doing things right, none, <laughs> because you can you can be completely efficient and still be a total hack or, to- or totally get it wrong. So efficiency is just simply a mindless metric, right? It's just like we talked about with cost accounting. It's just a mindless metric. It's some type of ratio outputs divided. It's always a ratio, by the way, outputs divided by inputs, whatever. Whereas effectiveness is doing the right thing. And that requires judgment. And, you know, this is, this is, I think, one of the things that you can even relate to the COVID you know, with the whole Dr. Fauci and the models and are masks effective or not? And people say, well, we need to rely on the science. Well, the science isn't the only trade-off we have to make here. And that's why we don't leave decisions to scientists. Yes, they're great on the science and we need them. And I'm not saying ignore them, consult them for sure. But they're not the ones to make the final decision because there are other trade-offs. And as Thomas Sowell taught me, not only did he teach me there's no such thing as generic efficiency, but he also taught me that there are no solutions ever. There's only trade-offs. And we can't leave that up to any one group. My big concern, and I hope, I don't know if this message of yours was even prevalent back in the early 2000s. Michael Gerber, I think, caused a revolution with, you know, turn your business into a franchise-like, franchise-like organization, you know, system, systematize everything. And my concern is, or it's not a concern, I've always viewed efficiency as it needs a job. It doesn't have a job unless there's innovation, uh, ingenuity, uh, disruption. And so it has a job to make those things somewhat structured until new uh, innovation comes along and then efficiency will have a new job. So efficiency is always keeping up with the latest designs, the latest disruptions. And uh, I don't know if that's a right perspective, but it just tells me that it is never the main thing as, as you and Ed do such a great job at bringing it to our attention. So I, I just hope you never quit uh, the great effing debate. I, again, I love it. That's a great way of saying that, by the way. And I just add that, you know, we can be a, efficient with things, but when it comes to people, we have to be effective. And the other problem with efficiency is it is, you're right, it's the antithesis of innovation. To be innovative is by definition to be inefficient, which which is why Google gives 20% of its time to, to its people to do whatever they want. Now that's completely inefficient, but um, 
It also it results in new products like Gmail and Google Earth and all the other things that came out of that 20% time. I mean, and the other, yeah, yeah, Gerber's book is great. I know it's influenced many, but this idea that every business has to be systematized down to McDonald's drives me crazy. Um, because in the knowledge economy, which we are in and have been in since 1959, um, it, 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 you know, it's not the system that's important. It's the human capital that's important. Give me great human capital, put them in a crappy system, and I'll get great results. And Pixar makes this point uh, all the time. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just I, I don't buy the whole we all need to be McDonald's. Boy, if the economy was just nothing but a bunch of businesses that ran as efficiently as McDonald's, you know how boring that would be? A lot. Speak, <laughs> speaking of Drucker, and I need to extend a thank you to you. Maybe I need to be a little frustrated. Did you know my net worth has probably dropped several thousand dollars because of all the books you mentioned? I, but one <laughs> of the I complain a lot. <laughs> but one of the books, one of the many books I bought that you've mentioned is a class with Drucker. And the author's name is escaping me. If I've ended up buying, I think all of that uh, guy's book. He's a professor, I believe. Yes. I know who you're talking about. That is, ah, uh, that is gold, that book. It is but, gold. But speaking of Drucker, he's had an influence on your thinking over the years. Is is that correct? And if so, oh my God, yes. T- t- I, tell me, tell us. Yeah. He, I think he deserves a Nobel Prize, which they don't give posthumously, unfortunately. So they'll never get one, but he deserved one. He's literally the father of management, even though people kind of say that was really Frederick Taylor. No, it was really Peter Drucker. He was kind of the first person to recognize that businesses was were an interdependent system. He called himself an ecologist more than anything because he knew that every that everything was interdependent. So he was a systems thinker. Everything was connected. Everything was interdependent. And he didn't, uh, he, he never said that, uh, what's that famous line that Ed hates that's always attributed to Peter Drucker, what you can measure, you can manage. Drucker never said it, never right. thought it, never believed it, in fact, wrote many things against that. Um, but I don't think, I was trying to figure out when I encountered Peter Drucker. And unfortunately, it wasn't until, uh, I think, right around the time I left the Big Eight. Now, I'd read some other thinkers that had quoted him and thought, well, this is interesting. I need to go check this guy out because I never heard about him through college. None of my business professors mentioned him. They might have, but it's just like the red Volkswagen that you buy, right? And then you see him all over. It's not on your radar, so you pay no attention. Um, But I don't remember ever being introduced or being made to read one of his books. And once I discovered him and I said, boy, this guy can write. He's got interesting historical examples. He's clear. He's concise. It's not your typical boring business book. I just started digging in the library and buying more and more of his books. Probably have 30 of his books. I forget how many he's written, but just incredible thinker. And so far ahead of his time. I mean, he coined the term knowledge worker, knowledge economy, privatization, um, uh, what did he call it? Cor- corporate socialism or pension socialism? Um, j- j- just really fifty years ahead of his time. Any business book you pick up, even today, it, <laughs> you can find it in Drucker. You know, uh, he's just—he was a great thinker. It's too bad, Ron. And I know we're going to be speaking to each other's choir, but I know you love business books because they have a long shelf life. And <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> But you have to, you don't read Drucker, you have to sit down and study him. But I still think The Effective Executive may be the best business book. And you and Ed ought to do it. Just look at the introduction, those seven bullet points, those six or seven bullet points of what makes an effective executive. I read that at least monthly. And Mm -hmm. it's just so spot on. But again, thank you. And One other thing about Drucker, and if you want to comment, you can, but you snuck in, and because I've listened to almost every show with about, with the exception of maybe eight or nine shows, you snuck in, I don't know if it was, boy, I don't know if it was a whole show or part of a show, but there's an article he wrote called The Theory of Business. 
the theory of business. So, but he just, he says the business is a theory. Every, all the concepts in business are a theory. And, and I, right. I have an old marked up PDF and because of you guys, I've, that is a, again, a brilliant article. It's like test everything. Don't take anything at face value just because Toyota may be doing something or some other business may be doing something, you know, test it. And it's just thought this is brilliant. So again, I appreciate uh, you just even mentioning that article. And that, again, that, that goes back several, <laughs> several years. It um, does. In, in fact, I think I quote uh, not so much from the article, but one of his books where he talked about business being a theory. And that was really just Drucker's term for a business model, mm-hmm. right? A business model is a theory. It's got to go get tested and validated and then revised as the world changes around you. Um, so yeah, I, I, Peter Drucker, big hero. I, in fact, I, you know, we've talked about this many times, but I said, I, I'm willing to take a gamble that if you put somebody through the Harvard business MBA program or Stanford MBA program, or take and take another person put them in the library and say, read everything Drucker's written, every book, every article. Uh, I think the person that read Drucker would come out more educated and more competent. Well, again, I'm, I'm quoting you basically because he did not believe that management is a science. It's something that's studied from the arts and humanities, right? (laughs) Right. It's the humanities. In fact, there's a great book on that. Um, Drucker's lost art of management, which is all about the argument that uh, businesses, humanities, I, I tend to think we should close our business schools and fold them back into humanities because we're turning out people who, you know, are so focused on efficiency and have no human skills. This may be the hardest question for you in this hour. I serve run a lot of CEOs who are, you know, scaling their businesses fast, effectively. I call them high dopamine uh, CEOs. Uh, They want those books that are very prescriptive. Again, the types of books, they have a short shelf life. Again, that's a term I now use because of you. How do you start introducing economics to the CFOs of the world, controllers, uh, FP&A professionals, and let's add CEOs, business owners, how do we get them interested in economics? You're at a whole new level. I mean, you're, you're at a different, you're at, a, you're in another spectrum. I mean, you love economics. You, you speak the language and you appreciate it. But for, for those working in business day to day who may not have time, do you have any suggestions on titles or uh, videos or short courses? Well, I guess it's a great question because I, you know, I minored in economics. So going through college, um, I had this incredible cognitive dissonance because there's a great story about uh, two graduate students in an economics class and the instructor's on the board and he's drawing his graphs and then he's got the whole ceteris paribus, you know, things that uh, are being held constant type of thing. And then you'll write a bunch of assumptions, you know, well, we're, we're holding consumer preferences and consumer income constant and all these different things. And one graduate student turned to the other. He said, what would economics be without its assumptions? And the other guy said, accounting. (laughs) And now that's actually quite profound because the difference between accounting and economics is accounting is not a theory right? It's an identity equation. Assets minus liabilities equal capital. It's it's true by definition. Whereas uh, economics is actually a theory that helps you peer into the future or, or, or explain things very thoroughly. And th- that caused an incredible cognitive dissonance as I was studying these two topics. Uh, and the reason I didn't become an economist because I knew there was more opportunity pay-wise, money-wise, to do uh, accounting, I could get a job quicker. Basically, if you wanted to be an economist, you had to go at least go get a master's or possibly a PhD, which I didn't want to do. Um, but I have found because, I mean, Mark, I built a career by running around on the speaking circuit and asking a single silly question, but people loved it. 
which is why is movie theater popcorn so expensive? Um, and that was the first 10 years of my public speaking career. And people love that question because they come up with all these different theories. Well, they have a monopoly, blah, blah, blah. And then you'd be able to shoot them all down. And then you'd be able to give them the correct answer. And it really made people think. And you can do this with 99 cent pricing and a whole bunch of other puzzles that economists have, have really shed some light on in terms of how we behave as humans. So I would say tell stories. And in terms of titles, uh, I, Armchair Economist by Steven Landsberg, who uh, we've had on the show, not only is this guy just a great writer, but they're very uh, easy to understand stories and he gives you the economics behind it. I just found that incredibly enlightening book and also Hidden Order by David Friedman, which is Melton Friedman's son, uh, who doesn't have an economics degree, by the way, but teaches it. He's got like a chemistry degree or something or in it. That's fascinating. It is. And we've had him on the show too, David Friedman, which was a thrill. Right. Uh, being uh, Melton Friedman's kid uh, or son. And uh, those two books are great. And and another one that's really easy that you can wrap your head around really well is Economics in One Lesson. Love that. By Henry Hazlitt. Yep. Love your show. The, the Soul of Enterprise. I, I, again, just saying I love the show, that's an understatement. But you've just finished your 300th show. And by the way, I like the way you had that. Um, what is his name from Australia? Matthew. Matthew. Matthew and I've met him uh, once in Texas. Just a great guy. Yes, that was a fun show. So can we expect another 300 from, from you and Ed? I think so. As long as we can keep getting Sage to sponsor it. So, yeah, I do. I think so. I think we'll keep it going. We didn't think it was going to last this long. So, um, you know, it's kind of what's the what's the uh, uh, the, the Lindy effect, uh, right? That cheesecake place in New York, the longer something's been around, the, the longer it will be around, you know, like books that last for hundreds of years, that type of I hope we have that effect going on. I mean, I just find it fascinating. Everyone that I say you need to listen to the show about one, two, three weeks later, I'll get a response. Mark, thank you for recommending uh, th- that show because now they, they are faithful listeners. I work a lot with other consultants and they love it. So they're not necessarily accountants per se. They may have an accounting background and, and I get the same response. This is really good. And then they start going back like I did to the very beginning and listening to them in sequential order. And so again, I just, I hope you all never quit. It will be a sad day, at least in my world. Another question we've been asking uh, guests, I think we started this with uh, Liz Wiseman who wrote the book Multipliers and she loved the question. I thought, you know what, we'll keep asking this. So Ron, I have an idea, but if you were going to do a TEDx talk, whether you do the full 18 minutes or a short one, an abbreviated one at your local college, your community college, where you're nearby, what would that TEDx talk be on? Wow. You know, I, I, I have been invited to do one and it was just, it didn't fit in with my schedule. So I, I've had to think about this in the past and it's really hard because you really want to do something that is, is memorable and, and really has an impact, a long-term impact. Um, I, I would think it would be one of three things if I had to answer that today. And that would be, I would take on the effing debate, uh, which I, it can be done very humorously. Um, you know, if, if, uh, Walt Disney was focused on efficiency, he would have made, you know, snow white and the three dwarfs. <laughs> um, and I, you know, that, that'll grab people, uh, or I would take on the idea that wealth is knowledge and growth is learning. So the whole George Gilder idea that, you know, capitalism is not an incentive system. It's a knowledge system. Knowledge is the ultimate source of wealth. 80% of the world's wealth is human capital, according to the World Bank. Or I would take on the zero-sum mentality of business people and politicians, whether it's tariffs, whether it's commerce, profit, all of that. I think those are three topics I might look at and choose one of them. 
finally, and this one may be tough for you. So even though you read widely, you read deeply, uh, you've mentioned many times, you don't, you try to cut back on business books. So I want to hear from you. What are the books that you have maybe have recommended the most over the years, maybe books that you've gifted. And again, Ron, you've, you've probably easily have read <laughs> three, four or 5,000 books, uh, if not more. So this has got to be a tough, it's even getting hard for me to say, well, what's your favorite book? What's like, what time period, what, what genre, what it's getting harder. <laughs> yeah, I, but the best I could do is what year, <laughs> because since we've been doing the show, we've been doing our top, you know, five or and 10 I, business or books that we, we, we took out business after the first year, I think, and just went to our top favorite books of the year. And uh, the last couple of years we've been doing five and, um, so that, um, uh, I guess if I go back to 2019, say what were the top five books I read then? Um, I really loved The Prosperity Paradox by Clayton Christensen, who I think passed away last year. He did, you're right. Because he, he was really talking about how innovation can lift nations out of poverty. Uh, and, and he did a really good job with that. And of course, I think I read The Experience Economy's third edition in that year. Uh, so those are those are kind of two business books that uh, I, I give a nod to. Um, Teen Zoe's book, Subscribed. I can't remember when I read it, but last couple of years, that had a big impact on me in, in terms of subscription economy um, because I think that's what we're moving to uh, in the economy and among professional firms. Um, and I would also say, Right now, Mark, I am reading Humanocracy by Gary Hamill. And Gary Hamill, to me, is in the second tier of management thinkers. If Drucker's in the first tier alone, <laughs> Clayton Christensen would be in the second, and so would Gary Hamill. And he wrote a book, um, I want to say about 10 years ago, called The Future of Management, where he laid out the idea that I've never been able to get over, and he's right about this, that management theory, the ideas that we use for management all date back to the 1800s and the latest being 1950. It stopped evolving. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited about the After Action Review is because it's a true management theory um, that that has got transformational capability, as I think does uh, results-only work environment, the row. But now this book, Humanocracy, uh, that just came out last week, uh, is a screed against bureaucracy. So you've already got, have you already read it? No, I'm about you, a third you, of the way okay. through it. And it's blowing my mind. Even though they, he's got another author with him, uh, it's a screed against bureaucracy. They've got an axe to grind, which I love. I, I love books that have an axe to grind because they tend to be passionate and well-researched because the authors heard every objection possible. Uh, and these guys are just tearing down bureaucracy, saying, hey, bureaucracy is killing our productivity. It's killing our creativity. In other words, we're creating organizations that aren't as adaptable and creative as the people inside them. And that's why people are disengaged from their job. That's why people have a don't care attitude, some of these things. And I just, it's, I think that's a really powerful argument. So I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And I do want to thank you. There are three books that have had, well, I should say four. And those first 100 shows you did have been so memorable. I've, Ron, I, I do have an Evernote page where I've taken I've gone back, Ron, I, th this sounds crazy. I've actually gone back and taken notes on on some of your all's shows. But there are three or four books that have met a lot. And if you don't mind, I'm going to share those. Oh, sure. The Halo Effect is a mm. book that I've read and listened to probably six, seven times. And that may seem odd, but as a consultant, you know, I'm one of those people, I will not take everything, anything at face value. And I just think, the halo effect, it fits, it fits where you and Ed are coming from. You, I think you cause us guys who listen to, to you cause us to think you are causing us to be thinkers and the halo effect, I just think is must reading. And I'd never heard of that book until listening to you guys. 
Now, you mentioned this book earlier at the beginning. You mentioned the management management myth, and I've probably gone through that four or five times. That, I think, for any consultant serving other people, you need to listen to that book. Uh, we've already mentioned that hope is not a method. And then the fourth book is A Class with Drucker. Those four, I just think if you are in professional services, you need to go through those those four books. I And again, I thank you. I don't know if I would have come across those titles without listening to your show. So, oh, yeah. Great. That's a great list. We were lucky enough to get on the author of The Halo Effect, Rosen. Yes, exactly. Um, but we were, and we're still going after him. We're trying to get to management myth, Matthew Stewart. He, I would love to talk to him. That he may be, well, I, I'm, ang- I'm anxious. <laughs> Uh, if you need to make a donation, email me. <laughs> uh, that that would be must listening. Uh, he would be great. So I again, I want to thank you, Ed. I, I, whoops, that was a faux pas, Ed. Ron, Ron uh, one of my heroes. I just called you Ed. Will, will he take that as a compliment? Yeah, we share that. We always oh. we always laugh that we share the same brain. So I'm know, an idiot. Gosh, confuse us. That's all right. <laughs> but but Ron, this is just such an honor. We, we got to meet briefly uh, in Texas at an event uh, that you and Ron held. I think it was related to your the Verisage Institute. Is that correct? Right. And yep. and one of the things I've I, I just want to say before we we go. Every time I've either emailed you in LinkedIn or private email, you have always been gracious and generous. I, I never get blown off, and, and I try to be very careful. I don't want to ever take advantage, but you and Ed are just so, I mean, you guys are the real deal. Both of you two are humble, and it just it means a lot to me. And what you're doing for your listeners is just phenomenal. So again, I, I'm honored to, to have you on the show. Well, Mark, we're honored to have you out there, and, and thanks so much. I mean, it's it's guys like you that are spreading the word and the show and the ideas. What you know, one of the things I think that Ed and I try and do is, you know, we didn't want to do a radio show for to talk about people or things or places. We wanted to do a show that talked about ideas, and we're incredibly passionate about ideas, and that's what we try and bring to the audience. And I realize that's not for everybody. A lot of people don't want to think. They want to be entertained when they listen to podcasts. That's okay. But we tried to model it based on ideas. And, um, you know, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, like you love our show, I love Econ Talk, uh, Russ Roberts. Yes. He's phenomenal because he goes very, very deep with his guests. He's respectful. They have a dialogue, even if they disagree. And just say, wow, that's a really high standard to hold yourself to. And we've had him on the show too, which was a thrill for me because a big fan of Russ's going back years. So um, I, I know where you're coming from when you, when you really love a show, look forward to it and it really impacts your thinking. Cause that's what econ talk does for me uh, and Ed too. It's his, it's his favorite show. So thank you very much, Mark. You, that's very flattering. I'm, I'm humbled. Bruce, buddy, I'm still on cloud nine. I'm hoping uh, we can have Ron on again, and maybe uh, Ron and Ed at the same time, uh, sometime down the road. Hey, Bruce, let, let's revisit pricing uh, once again. You're a SaaS-based company. Is pricing hard uh, for your business? I think, yeah, pricing's a ch- pricing is always a challenge there because you're you're trying to understand. I mean, you can you can be very simple about it, but but end up shortcutting yourself and be very simple and say, Oh, I want to, I want to cover my costs plus a certain percentage, but that's, you know, what you're, you're cutting short, what the value is to the market and what the value is to the customer. So it's, you know, making your money back versus pricing in relation to the value to your customer is, is a very, I think is a very challenging thing. And also challenge, you know, I think the another one of the challenging things is that first, you know, that first introductory price when you're trying to understand what the market is willing to pay, and 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 I think the the only way you really get to that is understanding what what need that you're what need you are, uh, that what needs you're filling, 
and what that is worth to the client, either through alternative goods or in um, opportunity costs. Uh, books. We mentioned several during the show. Again, I highly recommend the book Confessions of a Pricing Man. Get it, get it, get it, get it. It's not a prescriptive book, but it will bend your mind. Secondly, find an expert to bring in your company to evaluating your pricing philosophies. By the way, Bruce, have you have you read it? Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to answer the question just because you've met, you've, you've recommended the book several times. I think, so I thought, I thought you had it. That may be Ken. Um, you've, you've mentioned it. You've mentioned it a number of times over. There's a, there's a couple of different, there, there was another pricing book and the name escapes me right now. Uh, this is good radio. They, that is because of you, you make it that way. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're too kind. There, there there's a, uh, there was another book that I, uh, that I read that was that had a lot in it on pricing as well. But Confessions of the Pricing Man, you've recommended it several times. And uh, now's, the, now's the time to to go ahead and take the leap and for me to read that one. Bruce, let's uh, wrap this up. Be safe. Be well. Please practice love and empathy. We will talk to you again soon. Take care. CFOs, VBs of Finance, Controllers, staff accountants, financial analysts, FPA professionals, and all other financial leaders. Thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf.